Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, April the 30th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It has been an eventful week in Irish politics, and I'm joined today to discuss some of those events by Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray from our political staff. Hello to you both. Good morning. And in a little while, we're going to be discussing the new plan to ease COVID restrictions between now and early June. And we're also going to talk about the fallout from the departure from political life of former Fine Gael Minister Owen Murphy. But first, we did want to discuss another resignation. And I'm very pleased to welcome back uh, Belfast Newsletter's political editor, Sam McBride, who not only literally wrote the book on the Democratic Unionist Party with his bestseller, Burned, the inside story of the Cash for Ash scandal. But this week, Sam, you broke the story that led within 24 hours to the resignation of the DUP leader in North Northern Ireland First Minister Arlene Foster. Could you maybe just tell us first how those events unfolded over the course of this week? Morning, Hugh. Um, it's been it's been a it's been a pretty fast paced week, um, and it continues up until this morning. Um, so basically, at the at the about last weekend, I, I started getting text messages from people in the DUP saying there's a lot of discontent in the party. People are just fed up with Foster. They are um, they're starting to write letters to her. Constituency associations are sending letters. Um, we ran that on our front page on Tuesday. That that afternoon, Arlene Foster was on Belfast Shanko Road. She told reporters really quite dismissively that this this was one of these stories that comes and goes. She had bigger things to worry about. And that was that pretty much. Right at that moment um, in the DUP assembly group in, um, in Parliament buildings at Stormont, the moves against her were already probably unstoppable. The assembly group had brought back in Jim Wells, a right-wing DUP MLA who had been basically banished under Arlene Foster's leadership. Somebody who does not get on with her. He was literally supping with them. It was his birthday. They got him a cake um, and they were plotting as to how to remove her. By late that afternoon, um, it was clear that there was a letter with um, about 75% of the MLA group having signed that letter. It was a letter of no confidence, not just in Arlene Foster, but in Nigel Dodds and the entire DUP leadership team. Really an enormously significant attempt to try to purge the old guard, the people who have really made the DUP what it is today. And by the following day, about, I think, 26 hours after that, um, after that first denial by Mrs. Foster that anything was wrong, she had announced her resignation. Um, Really, as soon as we saw the numbers involved there, it was clear that she was at best leading, um, ultimately, when we got the final figures, a rump in the DUP um, Stormont team of 15%. That clearly was a completely untenable position for her. And they're really remarkable numbers because normally in a political heave, you know, the, the, the people are trying to get rid of the leader. You know, if they can get over 50, they're 50 percent, they're doing very well. Those are such striking numbers that it does beg a couple of questions. One is, I think I got the impression from you when we were talking previously that there was always an element of the dead woman walking about Arlene Foster after the cash for ash scandal and probably the, the shenanigans over the Northern Ireland protocol and Brexit and all the rest of it. And that certain people in the party were always willing to, were always really just waiting for the moment. So is it just that that moment just arrived right now? And if so, why now? 
That's absolutely correct as a synopsis of Arlene Foster's incredibly weak position over really the last four years. It's an extraordinary story. I mean, there's a there's a Shakespearean element to this that Arlene Foster was mistress of everything she surveyed for her first year as DUP leader. She was extraordinarily popular in Northern Ireland. She looked like because of her age, because of her, um, her command of her party, her popularity, the fact that she was of a new generation, a new type of DUP leader, she would be there for years, maybe even for decades. And suddenly, from cash for ash on, she has been um, really a shell of the leader that she then was. But because of circumstances, she had incredible power at Westminster, that very lucky election result for the DUP in 2017, which brought them to power. And at that point, it became very difficult to dislodge the person who was in charge um, of the DUP. But really, I think that what what has changed over the last um, really few months, I suppose, is that rather than this being um, straightforwardly about policy, although there is an element of policy in this, people on the right of the party um, who are disconcerted by the sense that Arlene Foster is actually not really of the DUP. She's in the DUP, but she doesn't really believe the same things as them when it comes to social issues like gay rights, when it comes to um, how to deal with Sinn Féin, etc. They, they have become concerned about some of those things. But really, I think that 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 is not at the heart of this. We should be cautious about reading too much policy um, into this. This was really as much a rejection of incompetence as it was about about anything that she was actually doing. She was lurching around all over the place. She was becoming rambling. Um, one DUP member described it to me as her erratic behaviour this week. And there was a sense that with an election 12 months away in Northern Ireland, that was really focusing minds. These guys were looking, and most of them are men, they were looking at their um, at their electorate. They were thinking, my job's on the line. Either we move now or we back her. And at this point, they decided, no, we sack her. And the other part of this, of course, is, as you said earlier, there's a critique not just of the leadership of Arlene Foster, but of the people around her, of Nigel Dodds, the, the deputy, and importantly, of these senior unelected figures. And um, in your book, you've, you paint a fascinating picture of the way the DUP actually works. It's quite an unusual party. It has a very small number of members by, by, by many party standards. Um, and there's a lot of power wielded by these people at the top who were essentially put in place more than a decade ago, weren't they, by by Peter Robinson. That's right. Actually, in some cases, 20 years ago, um, that that is how significant this is to the DUP. This is the modern DUP being um, revolutionised from within. If if this follows through to the extent that those behind the coup um, want it to um, want, want want ultimately to achieve here, the key figure here in the DUP at this point behind the scenes is Timothy Johnston. He's now the chief executive of the party. He has been in a very senior position for 20 years. He was one of Peter Robinson's two key lieutenants. He and Richard. Bullock really built and shaped the modern DUP, wrote the rules, um, professionalised the party, um, drew up its positions, um, wielded incredible discipline within the party. And Richard Bullock was jettisoned by Arlene Foster about three years ago. Um, Johnston remained. His brother-in-law is the chief spin doctor, John Robinson. And really, they are the beating heart of the DUP. This is an ultra-centralised machine. It's very similar to Sinn Féin. Power is vested at the top of the party. And while that gives gives a lot of latitude to the leader in terms of making quick decisions and being decisive. It also means that when things go wrong, they don't really have um, have anyone else on, on, on whom to um, spread the blame. It all points in their direction. And at this point, the really striking thing is that unlike past moves against DUP leaders, it's not just pointing at the leader. People are deciding, it seems from what they're saying, we're tired of the entire system of running the DUP. And that's very, very significant. 
So it's not just about the leader, but the leader is important. And given that the front runner, and I think the only candidate who has declared for the leadership so far, um, is Edwin Poots, um, I think it's fair to say that many people looking at Northern Irish politics from outside Northern Ireland, whether it be in Dublin or in the UK or further afield, one of the things that will strike them when they're reading the news stories is the fact that one of the, the triggers um, for this move this week was a dispute over gay conversion therapy. And there's Edwin Poots is widely known to be um, a creationist who believes that the, the, the earth was only uh, created 4,000 years ago. There's these recurring things. You mentioned Jim Wells. Jim Wells, uh, an MLA, who declared that he wasn't going to watch Strictly Come Dancing anymore because there was a gay couple on it. Um, you can understand why people might wonder what the hell the DUP is in the 21st century if these are the kind of issues that are preoccupying it. I think lots of people um, in Northern Ireland and particularly outside Northern Ireland will be um, certainly asking those questions. Um, just just on, I mean, I've, I've been I've been reading reading up on some of Edwin Poots' views over the last few days. And just, just for a point of clarity, I suppose he, he, he actually believes that the Earth is 6,000 years old, so it's 4,000 BC. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that will really make very much difference to how he's perceived by many people who um, who don't agree with that. Um, I think he, he is somebody who is steeped in the DUP, the old DUP, the Paisleyite DUP. His father was with Ian Paisley in the Protestant Unionist Party, which preceded the DUP. That's how far back they go. Um, he, he really represents everything um, about Paisleyism, both religiously and politically. And yet, beneath that, there is a slightly um, surprising side to Edwin Putz. He has this very hardline image in Northern Ireland, in Stormont. There aren't very many people who would disagree with that. And yet he's also been quite pragmatic behind the scenes. He's worked with Sinn Féin. He, he is not somebody like Gregory Campbell, who refuses to shake hands with, with uh, Sinn Féin members who uh, makes a, a, a big song and dance about um, really being quite offensive to them at various points, talking about some of their members as field hunger strikers and things like that. Edwin Poots doesn't indulge in that sort of rhetoric. He has a more um, uh, let's get on with it approach to politics. And so therefore, while on the surface, he is very um, hardline, very divisive, somebody who worries um, many DUP members as to whether he'll be able to garner votes from people who are not like that in Northern Ireland. Um, actually, he's somebody who, for instance, three years ago was much more willing, was fully willing to accept an Irish Language Act at a point when other um, seemingly more moderate members of the DUP were not prepared to do that. So he could be quite an interesting leader. He could be in the vein of a David Trimble who was elected as a hardliner over Drum Cree. Ultimately, we know how that ended up. There's, of course, no guarantee that's where he goes. But there, there certainly is a long history in unionism of people never being elected as moderates. That's not how you get into the, the upper echelons of unionist politics. But once there, generally, leadership has a moderating influence on these people. I mean, it's striking that the current day DUP is, is is like most political parties, a coalition of different forces. They're kind of the Paisleyite roots, which you referred to there in relation to Edwin Edwin Poots, um, a sort of a more pragmatic, modernising approach represented by Peter Robinson's leadership, I suppose, to some extent. And also within that, the, the, the substantial slice of the old Ulster Unionist Party, which migrated to the DUP, including Arlene Foster and Geoffrey Donaldson currently uh, at Stormont. It's very striking that Arlene Foster has declared that she's going to leave the party. Does that represent a solo run again or is there any chance of further fragmentation or a split? 
Well, I mean, I'm I'm frankly still astonished by this news. I, I was up pretty late last night trying to um, write some stuff for Saturday's paper and um, got up late this morning um, and read this and, you know, was was really quite blown away by it, by it to be honest. Um, she will obviously have had a very difficult week um, humanly, personally. Um, she appears to have been stunned by this. That doesn't say a great deal, frankly, about her grasp of her party, that she didn't see this coming. It's never particularly good for a political leader if a newspaper is more aware of what's going on in their party than they are. Um, But even setting all of that aside, um, that's what it's like for most political leaders when it comes to the final act. This is a remarkable situation. I I, I remember a a very old DUP member telling me one time that politics is a blood sport. um, And for for many years, the DUP has practiced that particularly viciously inside and outside. That's how they do politics. But it it is pretty unusual for a party leader before their um, political body is even called, before they've even left the leadership, to announce that they're not just standing back from elected politics, which has become more common, but they're actually leaving their party. It also strikes me as a very foolish thing to do from Arlene Foster's point uh, point of view tactically because she is trying to stop Edwin Putz from becoming leader. He is one of the key ringleaders of the coup against her. She doesn't want him to get that. The people around her don't want him to get that. And yet she is here saying basically to the people who are going to decide who gets to be leader, I'm off, I'm out of here, I disagree with you, I think you're all heading in the wrong direction. That strikes me as just another example of where Arlene Foster's temper, her anger um, is clouding her judgment and it's actually not um, helping her get to where she wants to get. Now, the DUP needs to figure out who's going to lead it by the end of uh, next month, by the end of May. Um, It's not a party which has been very enthusiastic about open leadership contests in the past. It's quite similar to Sinn Féin in in that regard, I suppose. Is it likely that some kind of arrangement will be struck? We hear quite a lot about some sort of dual mandate with Edwin Poots as First Minister and Geoffrey Donaldson as Westminster leader. I think that that particular suggestion is fading very um, much into the background. Now, it was being talked about significantly earlier in the week. It's clear now that Edwin Poots has declared for the leadership. He's not asking to be First Minister. He's declaring for the leadership. He's signalling he wants the top job. Um, Jeffrey Donaldson has still not declared. Uh, that plays into a sense within the DUP that he has been dithering for three years. There were people who were urging him to stand against Arlene Foster repeatedly. He was the front runner and people wanted him to move over RHI. They wanted him to move at various other points um, subsequent to that where Arlene Foster was seen to have massively um, got things wrong and damaged unionism. He didn't do that. And so every hour, every day that he delays makes it more difficult for him. People um, are around Edwin Putz say that they are confident and um, three people now within his team have told me they are confident he has the numbers already. Um, I think that while he is saying publicly that he wants a contest, he wants an open contest, and that in itself is a signal of somebody who is, who is at least trying to say that he wants change, he wants to end the internal secrecy of the party, at least for now um, it, it suits him to say that, um, he might not actually get that. I wonder whether Sir Geoffrey Donaldson when he looks at this will want to stand if he's not going to at least be close to Edwin Putz when it comes to the final reckoning here. And then looking ahead, I noticed you tweeting just before we started recording this a report in The Economist where um, a DUP MLA, I think, was talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol is going to be the first item in the agenda for the next couple of years for the DUP, although they know they're not going to get rid of it, certainly in the short to medium term. Is that really the most productive 
political programme for, for the party to pursue. I, I note our, our own columnist, Newton Emerson, in yesterday's Irish Times, suggesting that the kind of fragmentation that we're seeing across unionism and some of the losses of support to centrist parties like Alliance um, could end up with a situation, not just the dreaded situation among unionists that they no longer have the first ministerial post, but where they wouldn't even be in second place, the, the largest unionist party, that Alliance would be the second largest party, which is, would have been kind of unimaginable only a few years ago. Utterly unimaginable, and it shows how much damage, frankly, I think Arlene Foster has done to her party, has done to unionism, that all of these issues now are left in the lap of her leader, or, or of, her, of her successor. I think that the, the person who takes over here um, is really finding a party that is at a crossroads. It's lost much of its identity, its sense of what it stands for. Um, it, 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 it is really um, a party which is centralised around a handful of people who even within the party are now not trusted um, to handle these big challenges. There, there, there I think, is a, a very significant logic to the DUP focusing on the protocol. Um, at the moment, the protocol is, if you like, in a semi-skimmed version. We're getting... A part of the Irish Sea border. It's still not fully there. It's going to be hardened over coming months. The end of this year, the medicines border is going to go up. That's going to be very significant. We've seen with the Article 16 um, debacle from the EU how emotive and how difficult that is going to be. Um, we're going to have a situation where it, it is still not clear to me, it's not clear to a lot of people even that I've spoken to in, in Stormont's Department of Health what that means for Northern Ireland, what it means for drugs coming in from the rest of the UK if those have not been cleared by the EU. This is something that is so fundamental to how Northern Ireland looks, how it feels. It's not simply a matter of business. It's 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 also increasingly going to be a very direct constitutional issue for Northern Ireland in that as EU rules diverge, if you're a business person in Northern Ireland and you want to influence those rules, you're worried that they're going to impact you. Who do you go to to um, to lobby, which is all you can do because you can't have any democratic say in this. You don't elect MEPs anymore. You have to go to the Irish government. You have to go to Irish MEPs. Now, that is profoundly significant in a constitutional sense. And I think that gradually people in the DUP are realising the scale of what has happened here. Arlene Foster didn't realise that until it was too late. She tried to accept this. She was forced into trying to reject it belatedly. That didn't really ever have any credibility. Um, Her successor, if it is Edwin Putz, faces a, a very tricky situation here because he is the person who has allowed his civil servants to build the board to man the border. They continue to do that to this day while saying he opposes it. That is the sort of fence sitting that has damaged Arlene Foster. What's he going to do about that? That's the first dilemma for him in day one. Thanks very much indeed, Sam, for joining us and congratulations again on on breaking another huge story in Northern Ireland. Thanks very much. So Pat, what's the view from government buildings on all these shenanigans this week? Well, you know, like every other government, it's eyes are principally on COVID. But my sense, my sense in Dublin is that they are bracing themselves for difficulties. I mean, this isn't just, I suppose, because of the DUP's internal wranglings. It's because of the broader crisis of unionism, which, you know, we've seen. And and to be honest, I think that the shafting of Arlene Foster is part of that broader crisis of unionism. We saw one manifestation of it on the streets of Belfast and across Northern Ireland during the recent riots. Now we're seeing its political outworkings uh, in a way. And I think that this means difficult times, rocky times uh, ahead uh, in terms of north, south, east, west 
relations. I mean, it's not that things were proceeding particularly smoothly. There is clearly a very significant difficulty across Northern Ireland with the operation of the protocol. And as Sam pointed out, these difficulties are only getting going in terms of the barriers between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. And uh, and that is, a, that is a problem upon which the clock is ticking and ticking ever louder. You know, previously when there were troubles within Stormont, troubles within unionism, between unionism and nationalism in terms of how the institutions were uh, in the north, then there would be efforts on the Dublin-London axis to try and address that. When there has been progress in the north in the past, it has often been at the urgings of a united Dublin-London front. But there's very little confidence, I think, in the Irish government, uh, uh, according to people that I've, uh, I've spoken to about it in the last week, that there is, you know, that the North is is anything like near even the top half of the priorities in Downing Street. And, you know, when the, the locus of the difficulties in Stormont is principally within unionism, I think, you know, Dublin is in some respects powerless to address those. So in summary, I think there is in in Dublin a certain foreboding about the months ahead, but also a sense that working to address that is going to be very difficult indeed. So Jennifer, we said we were talking, going to talk about COVID and as, and as Pat said, that has absolutely dominated the political agenda this week. I think everybody, certainly I, am still a little bit surprised by the speed uh, of the changes which have been proposed now over the six, next six weeks, more liberal than than I expected. Yeah, I think um, you're not the only one who was surprised. Cabinet ministers were surprised, um, advisors were surprised. A lot of, I think, word kind of started filtering out, um, you know, throughout the, the afternoon where Nefesh were meeting and the cabinet subcommittee was meeting. And this kind of line started filtering out that, um, and I got a bit of a kicking for this on Twitter, which is which is fair enough, but that Tony Holohan is in a good mood. But I think the message people were trying to get across was that he wasn't thundering through the corridors with a level five letter in his hand like last October. Um, and what I was told that afternoon was that, um, you know, the ministers and advisors and people in government hadn't actually got the recommendations from Neffet yet about what should happen in the next couple of weeks, but that they were hearing that they were prepared to be a lot more liberal than they had expected. And of course, you know, that doesn't mean anything until you see what the actual recommendations are, until you see what happens. And as it turned out during that meeting, they they came forward with, um, I suppose, what one person described to me as a front loading of measures, which would be eased throughout May and uh, June. So, you know, the way it was put to me was all of these things were always on the pitch for certain phase dates throughout the months in the summer, but that a lot of them were being brought forward in an unexpected way. Um, and one person said, this is very un-Tony Holohan-like. Uh, so it kind of gives you an idea of what the what the, the, the thinking was when, when these suggestions were made. So, you know, we, we know kind of what, what's transpired since then. And we know that actually a lot of the measures which will be unwound over the coming weeks, um, you know, they're all mainly outdoor related. So you're talking about allowing people to meet up uh, in their garden at six people or, or three households. That was something which last Sunday, as early as last Sunday, senior people in government said they wouldn't allow. They, they I, I talked, I was working on Sunday and talked to people involved in this and they said that, you know, there was no chance that people would be allowed to meet outdoors in their gardens uh, as soon as, as soon as they will be after May 10th, because the fear was, 
yes, they might meet outside, but it, they will inevitably, those gatherings will inevitably go inside if the weather gets bad or when it gets later or a few drinks have been had or whatever. So that's, you know, these kind of changes that were very much accepted. Um, so what the what the, the public health team recommended was sort of two major dates. Now, there are kind of smaller ones dotted in between, but we're talking about May 10th, the first one. And, and from then onwards, we know that there'll be an easing of uh, the travel ban um, and, you know, hairdressers, etc. The second big one then being between May 2nd uh, um, and May 7th. Now, that's June 2nd and June 7th. Sorry, June 2nd, June 7th. In their, excuse me, in their letter, I understand the, the public health team said that None of the um, measures in June, such as reopening outdoor hospitality, uh, should happen any sooner than June the 7th. Uh, Now, we know that the government decided to pull that back a little bit and go ahead and allow hotels to reopen uh, on June the 2nd and for residents to be able to dine indoors. That's caused a bit of a ruckus now over the last couple of days because restaurants are saying, what is the science behind this? We are not being allowed to have people indoors in our pubs and restaurants until at least July. And we haven't been given a date in July, whereas other people who go to book a hotel now can go to the bar or can go to the, the restaurant indoors. And and there's a lot of anger about that, I think. Um, and so there's a couple of different, you know, there's a couple of different measures there we can tease through. But I think your assessment is is right overall. Things have happened a little bit faster than the political system expected. You have a very interesting point in your analysis today, Pat. It's all interesting, of course, but one point I found particularly interesting was you talked about how the government has been arguing that um, it's not possible to accept both one argument from the from Neffet, which is that the situation is still really grave and that therefore extensive restrictions have to be made in place, while also accepting the view from NIAC, the National Immunisation Advisory Committee, that the situation is not so grave that you can't use, in their words, abundant caution in the rolling out of vaccines, that those two things are mutually exclusive. It's the kind of um, it's the kind of argument that will win you brownie points in a school debate, um, but it is fairly incontrovertible in terms of its logic. Uh, yeah, I mean, as a former um, tediously long-winded school debater uh, myself, I take that as a compliment, <laughs> Hugh. But yeah, I, I, I think what's behind that Hugh, is that there has been, you know, people in government were privately very annoyed last weekend at the delay in NIAC giving the advice. And they were also somewhat put out by the restrictions that, or they were disappointed by the restrictions that have been imposed on the use of vaccines, um, not just last weekend, but previously by uh, by. Uh, by NIAC and they have, they contrasted to me this, uh, I mean, as you pointed out, this abundance of caution approach with the urgency that was required by NEFID in, in terms of keeping the country locked down because presumably you don't keep very severe restrictions in place for a long period of time unless the situation is quite urgent. So I think that those two things came together. And my understanding is that in advance of the decisions being made this week, that this point was made constantly in in recent weeks. And I think that is very much what has brought us to the position of this faster than than expected reopening. I mean, it is acknowledged, Jen, that there are Serious risks here, low to moderate risks, I think, is the um, is the way it's phrased. There is still, you know, quite significant community transmission. Our numbers are good by comparison with the rest of Europe, but it's it's still out there. There's questions. There's all kinds of questions about about variants. Um, 
there is the possibility that some of these things might have to be rolled back far. There is certain modelling that shows cases rising up into the thousands per day by summer, in which case, presumably, something would have to be done by that. We had Ethan McLeisett from the Independent Scientific Advisory Group on Wednesday, and they're obviously promoting zero COVID. And I think uh, Ethan McLeisett herself accepted that that's not going to happen. Um, And clearly, nothing like that is going to happen at all. But it's not beyond the bounds of possibility if we look at what's happened in other countries and in parts of the United States, that the things in June mightn't happen and that might create all kinds of further tensions, the, the changes, the liberalisation in June. It's not. It's not beyond the bounds of possibility. And like there is a phrase that Leo Varadkar always uses, um, you know, he says that the virus loves to rip up our plans. And that's true. It, that is true. And we've seen that. Um, over the last 14 months, that that's exactly what happens. You make a plan, you set your five-level plan or you set your five-phase step plan and eventually it goes out the window. The difference this time, obviously, is that we have the vac- uh, the, the vaccine programme and the rollout of vaccinations. Um, I was talking to one person who was in the room for the, the cabinet meeting when the uh, Nefesh folk came in to give their briefing and the ministers were in there to talk about what, what will be eased and, and what and when. And one of them said to me that they were kind of left scratching their head a little bit because the presentation that was given by Nefesh was certainly not everything's grand and we can, you know, plough ahead with reopening and, you know, this is a very good news story. They were very much being still, like the situation was still could, you know, be perceived as very volatile, um, that, you know, we're at, you know, quite a high level of cases considering other phases in the past when we eased restrictions. And they also pointed out, you know, the increased transmissibility of the B117 variant and sort of a question mark around what happens when you let people gather, even if it is outdoors as they're doing in different forms throughout the month of May, what happens with that B117 variant? You know, what happens to the transmissibility and what effect does that have on, on the OR number? And a certain question mark around that. Um, and, you know, the person I talked to said, you know, it was very hard to marry what they were saying, what they were recommending in a sense. Um, but be that as it may, I think it's their job to be extremely cautious and always, you know, not give the worst picture, but give, you know, the worst case scenario in the future. And, and I think probably be negligent for them if they didn't do that. Um, but you're right, like, I, and there is, um, there is an acceptance in Cabinet that this thing could go off the tracks. And there is an anxiety about that. And that's understandable. But there is also an anxiety about what that would mean politically, because people have been through, you know, one of the longest lockdowns in the world and one of the toughest lockdowns in the world. And anyone I talk to in government is very, very aware of the fact that public compliance has completely not gone out the window, but people are done with lockdowns, completely done with lockdowns. And the idea of closing down any of the measures that they've announced or reversing any of the things that they've announced it's to say it is politically unpalatable, I think, is an understatement. Um, and they will do everything in their power to make sure they don't have to to row back on it because the consequences are pretty grim, I think. Yeah, I was listening finally on this, Pat. I was listening to the Taoiseach being pressed on Morning Ireland on this very point, being asked, what would the numbers have to be in order to have some kind of a review or some kind of a stalling of the of this process? And he uh, he was very reluctant to give those numbers. He said it was a it was a very complex landscape, and there isn't just one number. All of which is true. There's the OR number. There's the number of positive cases. There's the situation in hospitals. There's the rollout of the vaccine, and there's probably one or two other things there too. So it, I mean, I do wonder if things go start going a little bit 
getting a little bit hairy in the third week in May. Is it within the political will of this government to actually, whatever about rolling back, not to implement the opening up in June? Yeah, we, we, we pressed the Taoiseach uh, on this last night at the uh, press conference in government buildings and he was similarly unyielding on it. Now, you've got to assume that there is, if not specific numbers, there are a range of numbers relating to not just daily case levels, but ICU admission, hospital admission, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that you know, will form, I suppose, the matrix of decision making at that stage. They've been very clear that, you know, the end of at the end of May, there will be an assessment of how things are going and the June reopening will be uh, will be contingent on that. But I think one important thing to realise, and in some senses, the structure of this is quite quite skillfully done, I think, because we're all talking about a massive reopening now. But the massive reopening is not coming for some weeks. And when it comes, it'll come gradually. So, you know, really the 10th, the 17th, and then into June. But, you know, in in two weeks' time, there'll be another half a million people jabbed. You know, in four weeks' time, we hope, there'll be another million people jabbed. And that is the real, uh, you know, the view in government is that that is the real difference between uh, between now and previously. So in a way, by stretching out the reopening and rolling it over several weeks, as the plan is, uh, they are giving the vaccination program time to catch up and get ahead of where the real threats would be. So that even if there is a, a sharp increase in in daily case numbers, which is, I suppose, the most obvious number that people watch, that won't come until into the middle, latter half of May, when you have a much higher number of people uh, vaccinated. And, you know, the, the sort of numbers, it's very difficult to get people to talk about numbers, but, you know, you're, you're somewhere up, we're at about 400 a day now. So let's say it goes to 700 or 1,000 a day. That wouldn't be anything like as serious as it would, would have been previous, uh, previous to then, or even as serious as it would be now, because so many more people will be vaccinated. Yeah, we see about that. There is the question of exponential growth and what the consequences of that are too. But anyway, I want to move on to what, in the context of the sort of grim numbers which Pat is talking about there, is a lighter subject, Jen. Uh, I don't propose to uh, engage in an autopsy on the political career of Owen Murphy. I think we should look on the bright side, which for all political nerds is that there is a by-election coming uh, in an interesting constituency. And if if politics is show business for ugly people, well, then by-elections are the Oscars of uh, of of, of politics. Um, what's going to happen? When's the by-election going to happen? Who's going to win? Love that. Love that. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I am just thrilled. I'm so excited about this by-election. I was saying it to Pat the other day on the phone. I was like, we'll take this election. No, not a big one, just this one. Um, no, it's great for us to get um, our teeth into something political because it's been all been COVID, understandably, uh, mostly COVID by and large for for more than a year now. And and the, the thoughts of getting stuck into a constituency and all the machinations just gives me a real pep in my step now, I must say. Um, so, you know, yes, it's been a really, it's been a roller coaster every week. And the week kind of started off with the news, very early morning news about, like you mentioned there, Owen Murphy resigning his doll seat. Now, before we go into kind of the details of the constituency, there had been rumours going around that he would leave politics. And 
I kind of approached him um, and asked him at one stage, is that true? And he was like, no, I always say these rumours, like, if I haven't heard that. And I was kind of wondering, like, hmm, and I forgot about it. But I think obviously this has been on his mind for for a while. Um, and when he was talking on the radio about his decision to leave, he kind of talked about how could he take all these decisions as a TD, knowing he wouldn't be there to, for re-election the next time, which was which was interesting. But yes, yeah, so he will, uh, he's resigned his seat and it kicks off a by-election and by-election must be held um, within six months. So we're talking about by November. There was some speculation that the by-election could be held in July. Um, there was sort of an idea that maybe it would be a more a better time to hold a, a, a by-election but I think we are because of COVID probably looking now there are preparations for a COVID poll should be needed but I think we are looking towards uh, the autumn well well, just to say this is a very particular kind of a, a kind of a constituency uh, the, the, the accepted um homonym in the Irish Times is leafy, which equals bourgeois. Um, It's not entirely homogenous in that way, but it's traditionally a very strong um, middle class support for Fine Gael there. It had two seats for a long while. I mean, I think it's very fair safe to say that it's a constituency where you're never much more than 200 metres away from a oatmeal decaf latte. Um, So in other constituencies, this would be a great opportunity for the main opposition party, but probably not here. Probably not here. And actually, you're right. It is it is regarded as kind of one of the more affluent constituencies. Um, and I was over in one of their parks recently and I can attest to the oatmeal and decaf. Um, lovely parks, though, I must say, as a Northsider. Um, but yeah, so I mean, like the this constituency takes in just a huge amount of the of the political map. And, you know, obviously there was uh, the constituency was redrawn um, a number of years ago. And now what we have is this really diverse, actually, uh, uh, constituency, but it is regarded as being um, quite affluent. I mean, we remember years ago we had kind of the rumble in Ranala and, you know, it does give rise to a lot of very colourful political characters, very colourful political moments. And I think that's why to have a by-election, of any by-election, this one is the one that people are quite excited about. But yeah, so if we look at kind of the the general election in this constituency, Fine Gael took, between their two candidates, uh, Owen Murphy and Kate O'Connell, I think nearly 28% of the vote. So it's kind of regarded as theirs for the taking to a certain degree, to a certain degree. And that's why this will be so interesting. Um, so we know that obviously Kate O'Connell ran in the, the general election. She lost her seat. I think in total, she by, by the final count, she had around 6,000 votes. Now, there's a big question mark about whether she will go back into politics. She was on the radio recently and said that she wasn't done with politics, but she's been completely silent uh, publicly about her whether she's going to go for this or not. Um, I, my understanding is that she hasn't made up her mind yet. So I think people, in, certainly there's a lot of people in Fine Gael watching to see, will she go for it or won't she? And will she get the backing of the party in terms of selection? Because as we know, um, she has been very outspoken about Leo Varadkar. You know, she was the, the person who during the leadership race talked about choir boys singing for their supper. Um, obviously very staunch um, uh, supporter of Simon Coveney. Um, and, you know, even recently in the radio, she was kind of criticising Leo Varadkar's leadership at a time when he's under pressure about the leaking of that GP document. Um, so we'll see what happens there. I mean, there is a view that actually the candidate the party wants is James Gagan. Pat could correct me on the, uh, I always say the name Gagan wrong, Gogan, Gagan. But um, 
I understand that he probably will go for it and and, and he wants to. Um, I spoke to him earlier in the week and he said that he was consulting with his wife before he made up a decision. But I would expect we'll hear something, if not in the next few hours, then in the next couple of days um, from him. So that's the situation in Fine Gael. And people are focusing on Fine Gael in that constituency because of the fact that they took such a big chunk of the vote the last time around. And then in terms of, you mentioned opposition parties, um, well, before we move on to the opposition, there's Fianna Fáil, obviously. Um, and, you know, the problem for, for Fianna Fáil in the area is that they had Chris Andrews, who is now Sinn Féin. And, you know, obviously they have the sitting TD, Jim O'Callaghan. And it's not regarded as being a, a Fianna Fáil stronghold. It's not regarded as being a party heartland. But Jim might come under a little bit of pressure from people in the party to prove, can he bring in, if not uh, a candidate, you know, can he increase the vote to enough of a level to be viewed as impressive, I suppose, especially when, you know, we've talked in this podcast so many times about how Fianna Fáil are, have always tried to increase uh, their numbers in Dublin and how important that is for them. And when people talk about the leader, uh, the future leadership of Fianna Fáil, they always talk about having a Dublin leader. Uh, and if you're going by current TDs, that's either Jim or Dara O'Brien, um, or I suppose Sean Hahi, but the, they're the two who are mentioned. I'm going to put a spake in for Paul McAuliffe then as well. Why not? <laughs> Get them all in. My local, my local TD. Oops. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we'll see what happens there. I mean, there's there's two views in Fianna Fáil. Number one, he really should make an effort. And if he can do this, his credentials are burnished. The other view is that if he completely flops here, what is, you know, this isn't great and questions will be asked. But I'm not so sure, personally, how much of a big deal it is. I mean, we'll see. I think the really interesting thing in this constituency will be what happens with Sinn Féin, uh, and how do they do and their spectacular performance last year? Can we, can they, I suppose, can they do that again? I, I wonder. I mean, Pat, Sinn Féin, I think, got a bit, I mean, did perform well. They got about 16% of the vote. That's not going to be, that's going to be a long way off being in, in shouting distance in a in a contest for a single seat. And they, they would need a very large number of transfers, which has sometimes been a challenge for them in the past. We should also mention the in very interesting intrigue around Hazel Chu and whether she will get to stand for the Green Party, given all the internal ructions which have gone on in the Green Party at the moment. And I also do wonder as well, you know, this is a particular kind of constituency. The Irish Times office is there. Uh, the Dáil and government buildings are there. RTE, you know, all that kind of stuff. It it, it seems tailor-made for a bit of a celebrity candidate or something, should you find one. I'm not going to describe Michael McDool as a celebrity candidate because, I mean, he's been a minister in Atonistan, a leader of a political party. But you could see somebody breaking through in that in in that way and perhaps making an impact. Yeah, but you could probably say that of any by-election, uh, to be honest, Hugh. Um, po- possibly we, uh, for all those reasons that you mentioned, um, we probably pay more attention to this constituency than we do to many others. That having been said, it has all these, as Jen has outlined, it has all these fascinating subplots in this general election and um, and 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 it has an importance for all the parties, all the main parties individually and internally, um, uh, as much as it does in terms of the the uh, the outcome of the uh, of the general election. There is the, the matter of the possible candidature of Hazel Chu and what the position of the Green Party is going to be on that. It's important, I think, to realise that the you know when you talk about transfers as you as you did in relation to Sinn Féin there 
like transfers will be more important for uh, for every candidate than they are in a general election because you know the arithmetic of a by-election is completely different to a general election. This is a four-seater, so in a general election you need to get 20%, uh, you need to get to 20% of the vote to get uh, a quota. But in a by-election there's of course only one seat, so you need 50% plus one of the uh, of the electorate to get to, or of the votes cast to get to a quota. So I think it'll be interesting from that point of view as well, like do what is the nature of the Fine Gael Fianna Fáil transfer? What is the nature of the of the intra-government transfer then, including the Greens? Is there any solidarity there? Or is there a vote left, transfer left sort of feel about this? What about, you know, the Labour Party and the Social Democrats? You know, they, uh, have, what is the relationship between them in this, um, uh, in this by-election going to be? So there's an awful lot to watch, uh, I think, in this, uh, in this general election. It is, um, Ben, and, and to head off your, your, your next question, Hugh. We're not going to be making uh, predictions on this until we know who the candidates are and we can then make some ill-educated guesses as how the, at how the transfers will go. All I can tell you is that uh, we will pay it a great deal of attention over the coming months. Yeah, I'm very disappointed we're not getting the predictions, but I think that noise you can hear is the sound of political correspondents licking their lips at the prospect of that particular contest. We do have to leave it there. So thanks very much to Jennifer and to Pat and to Sam McBride for joining us earlier. Also to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're going to be back in your feed very soon. Do remember to mail us with your thoughts and questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Been getting some really interesting emails lately, so thanks for those. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 